if you have a Bible today, could maybe turn uh, to the chapter in Hebrews, the second chapter, and we're thinking of verses 5 to 9 uh, together this morning. Jesus superior to the angels. Saturday, the 6th of May, has been set for the new king's coronation, codenamed Operation Golden Orb. It will be a day of celebration in the nation by and large, and the 8th of May has officially been declared as a bank holiday, and it will be a moment of investiture for Charles in immense glory and honour. He will wear St. Edward's crown. He will be anointed with holy oil by the Archbishop. He will sit in a 14th century chair. He will receive the orb, coronation ring, and the scepter. He will then have the right to use kingly privileges and titles. 2,000 dignitaries will be present, and nations around the world will congratulate him and invite him to visit their countries. Verses 5 to 9 of this chapter describe our King, Jesus. Verse 9 says, He is crowned with glory and honor. Our writer is returning in verse 5 of chapter 2 to the theme of Jesus being superior to the angels, which he discussed in the first chapter. This theme, of course, is not unique to the book of Hebrews. We will consider, God willing, the writer's teaching on the high priesthood of Jesus later on in this book, and that teaching is unique to the book of Hebrews. But Jesus, a superior to angels, is found in other writings in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 1.22 we read, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. However, the unusual thing about these chapters in Hebrews is that the doctrine is expanded and unpacked in these verses. But you're asking, why does our writer return to this subject of angels? Has he not dealt with it fully in chapter 1? Has he not made his point? Has he not brought forth his arguments? The writer returns to this theme of the superiority of Jesus to angels, not because he's lost his way, but because he has one further aspect of Jesus' superiority to angels to consider. That Jesus, as human, is superior to the angels. In chapter 1, the writer focused on Jesus as God, Son, being superior to the angels. Now, he's anticipating this objection from the readers, as we've already mentioned. He addresses Jesus in his human nature. And he asserts that as human, Jesus is also superior to the angels. And we can get the question. We understand the concern of the readers. Perhaps we have it ourselves. Jesus of Nazareth was truly man. 
Jesus of Nazareth was crucified at Jerusalem. How then could he be superior to the angels? Does not the eighth psalm say that mankind was made lower than the angels? With fantastic skill then, this great preacher, this great writer anticipates our thoughts, our questions, perhaps our very real objections. And over this communion time, we're thinking of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. And to help us see his argument within this part of chapter 2, I summarize it for you now, and then we'll unpack it in our sermons over the coming weeks. His argument is, at creation, God did not subject the world to angels. Humans, through sin, spoiled their lordship over the earth. Jesus is truly human and as such is Lord of all. And so the writer is looking back to the very beginning and the design of God in creation and the position that he gave to mankind. And he's seeing it fulfilled ultimately in the Lord Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor. So you see his argument. Far from the humanity and suffering of Jesus being an argument for the inferiority of Jesus to the angels. It is actually an argument for his superiority to the angels. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Let's think first of all then of the angels not being appointed to rule over this world in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The writer of this letter is fond of arguments from silence. And sometimes we argue that that is a weak argument. But this writer does use arguments from silence. We saw it in chapter 1 verse 5. He asks, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And the answer is never. He he never said to them, you are my son. And here's another argument from silence. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He dwells on something that God has not done to emphasize the greater thing of what he has done. You might say, My Susan didn't buy a Renault Clio as her first car. No, she bought an Audi TT. That is a more emphatic statement than saying, My Susan bought an Audi TT. Looking at what she didn't do magnifies what she did do. This is what the writer does here. It was not to angels God subjected the world to come. Now the phrase in 2 verse 5, the world to come, is difficult to to understand and I would be interested uh, to hear different views uh, about this. What is it 
that the angels have not been made rulers over. As you can imagine, commentators are divided over the meaning of this phrase. Some think it refers to the new heavens and the new earth, a new world that awaits us in the future. And so they think the meaning is that in the new order, post the final judgment, angels will not be the dominant power in the new heavens and the new earth. They are powerful beings. People who encountered them were afraid of them because of their brightness and presence. But they will not rule in the new heavens and the new earth. David McWilliams, one of my favorite books on Hebrews, and R.C.H. Lenski, probably known to, to Tim, an older writer, he states, the world to come refers to the new heavens and new earth. However, many other commentators argue that this phrase does not refer to the future heavens and earth, but to the messianic age begun with the coming of Jesus at Bethlehem. Thus, Howell Jones argues, we are not to consider this phrase from our standpoint, but from the standpoint of Old Testament believers in Old Testament prophecies, there are many predictions about the age to come, the age of the glorious Messiah. So this phrase means this present gospel age. The world of the Holy Spirit sent, the nations being converted, and Satan being bound. As such, it corresponds to chapter 1 verse 1 or 2, these last days. The writer says in verse 5, of which we are speaking at this present time, speaking about these last days. John Calvin adopts this second position, which I would prefer. He writes, the world to come is not that which we hope for after the resurrection, but that which began at the beginning of Christ's kingdom but it no doubt will have its full accomplishment in our final redemption. The signs, the wonders, the miracles, the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in verse 4 of chapter 2 confirm that the present of the world to come is very much here already. And the writer says about this world to come, God has not subjected it to angels. This gospel age is not under the rule and management of angels. They are not overseeing the descent of the Spirit, the mission to the Gentiles, the building of the church, the binding of Satan. The writer is drawing on his argument in chapter 1 as the fifth verse begins with the word for. He's looking back to his argument of the role of angels within this present gospel age. He asserted it in verse 14. They are sent by God on various missions into the nations and into the world. In the book of Revelation, it's the angels who are blowing the trumpets for the judgments to come. It's the angels who are pouring out those bowls of wrath. They have a role within the church. They have a role within the world. But it is not 
to dominate this present gospel age. They're involved in the church. They're involved in the world, not as lords over them, but as servants in them and to them. It's unlikely that Prince Harry will ever be king, isn't it? Imagine it. He is fifth in line to the throne after William, after George, after Charlotte, and after Louis. But there is still the slightest possibility of him ruling. But angels will never, ever rule the world to come. And angels accept the role that God has given them in the church and in the world. And we too are to accept the role that God has given us within the world and in the church. God has appointed men only to be elders and deacons in the church. That might annoy you. That might frighten you. But let us accept the roles God has given in the church. God may have appointed for you to fulfill the role of a husband or a wife or a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or perhaps none of these roles. Let us accept the plan he has for us and embrace the role he has given us as the angels have done. Perhaps he has given you a public role in the church or maybe a private role in the church. Let's embrace the role he's given us. Do you think angels would love to be humans, to experience the redeeming love of God? Do you think they would love to be the Son of God and have all the glory and the honor? I don't think they do. I think they accept the role God has for them in the church and in the world, and they give their all to it. Maybe the role God has given you in the church is a speaking role or maybe an acting role. Maybe your role in the world is predominantly using your mind or maybe it's using your hands. Let us accept our God-given role, especially as here where a denial of role is involved. The angels have not been appointed to rule this world. But secondly, humans have been appointed to rule this world. Who is ruling this world then, you ask? The writer does not name the current ruler in 2.5, but does give us an answer from Psalm 8. The Lord of this world, he argues, is humankind, according to the 8th Psalm. That was the destiny God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and all their descendants. The psalm echoes the words of Genesis 1.28 spoken by God to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Have dominion over every living thing 
he said. There in creation, mankind was established rulers of the world. Mankind was crowned with glory and honor by being made in the image of God. Birds, fish, animals, as we've said to the children, were not given this crown. It was man and woman, Adam and Eve, who had the crown of God's image placed on their heads. And part of that crowning glory was dominion over all the earth. To reflect God's reign over all things in heaven, mankind as the image bearer of God was to rule over earth. And that rule was absolute, verse 8 says. Now in putting everything in subjection under mankind, he left nothing outside his control. This was the experience of Adam and Eve for a time and God's intended function for all of us. Man and woman to rule this world, not the angels. But now we only see a faint reflection of human domination in our world because of sin. John Calvin uses the image of a ruined castle to depict that situation. We get the meaning of the writer in 2 verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. This intended dominion has been destroyed by our sin from the very beginning. After the fall, God cursed humanity and their dominion. And ever since, there has been constant conflict between mankind and the world. The curse of Genesis 3 threatens conflict between humans and the world. Man will toil to put food on the table, but the ground with its weeds will work against his toil. In his closest relationship with his wife and helpmate, there will be conflict, tension and disagreements. Between man and the spiritual intruder, Satan, there will be a running battle. And from Eden until now, that weakening of human dominion has continued. So that present, we do not see all things put under mankind. Black bins, blue bins, brown bins, bottle bins. What's going on, you wonder? Has the council lost it? They're giving us all this extra work and threatening to refuse to empty our bins if we don't comply with their regulations. Are they misusing their powers or are they seeking to fulfill the God-given role of managing this earth that God has given to us? I think they are. The primary application of this point is that we must care for our environment. Our role is to manage this world. Psalm 115:16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Concurring and complying with the council's effort and more efficient recycling is one simple way for us to care for our earth. It's easy to discard it, to consider it as mere bureaucracy gone mad. But in the context of Genesis 1, Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, this is part of our God-given role. 
the world was not subjected to the angels. The world was subjected to the rule of mankind. But sin spoiled it. And thirdly, Jesus is presently ruling this world. Besides angels not ruling this world and mankind originally appointed to rule but now incapable of ruling, verse 9 says, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. He is the perfect man who has been given in his exaltation absolute rule and dominion over this world. Matthew 28, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. He is seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling the destiny of mankind announced in Genesis 1 and described in Psalm 8. Philip Hughes comments, in Christ, the dominion for which man was originally created is everlastingly established in him. As such, He is superior to angels who were not appointed to rule the world to come. It's Jesus who is ruling in this gospel age. He controls the descent of the Spirit, the mission to the Gentiles, the binding of Satan. The current reign of Jesus is given in terms drawn from Psalm 8 and verse 9, crowned with glory and honor. Some commentators understand this crowning as a reference to his baptism, others to his transfiguration. Some see a reference to the priestly garments in Exodus 28 who use these two terms, glory and honor. But the reference is to human dominion over this world as indicated in Psalm 8. The verse indicates that the glory and honor of Jesus came after his sufferings, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death. As a reward for his sufferings, Jesus is exalted in glory and honor. Philippians 2 makes the same point. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. The glory of And honor of Jesus is his dominion as perfect man over all things. Maybe you're asking then, how does the phrase lower than the angels fit into this idea? Is that not going against the whole argument of Jesus being superior to the angels? And the answer to that question is in the full statement in verse 9, who for a little while, was made lower than the angels. With regards to Adam and Eve in the state of innocence, it refers to the covenant of works, which included the promise of elevated life and glory if they passed their probation, as well as their being the threat of death. They were made for a little time lower than the angels, but it was not God's intention to keep them there. There was the possibility, the opportunity through perfect obedience to God of promotion to a higher level than the angels. So lower 
is a time-related position for a little while lower than the angels. With regards to Jesus, it refers to his humiliation on earth, subject to the sufferings of this world, something the angels are never subjected to. Such humiliation was for a little time, but now he is crowned with glory and honor as king over the world to come, a position that is higher than the angels. He's king today. He has absolute authority and dominion over our world today. Last week there was a bomb in Jerusalem, a shooting in Virginia, a flooding in Scotland, a foiled terrorist activity in Straban. And besides these worlds and local events were the joys and sorrows of all of our lives. But in every event, there is a reason, there is a purpose. They are all part of a plan because Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. In that rebuff, that sarcastic remark, being overlooked in that setback in your life, in that refusal, in that pain of yours, there is a purpose because Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. So let us trust him. Let us honor him. Let us love him. Let us look forward to kneeling down in worship before his throne. Is he king in all our life? Do we speak within the parameters of his laws with truth that is whole, with kindness that is considered, with humility that is genuine, with encouragement that is sincere, with love that is generous? Do we think within the laws of Jesus? Are our thoughts pure? Are our thoughts of giving and not always of getting? Do we think of others above ourselves and not beneath ourselves? Do we act within the laws of our king, with integrity, righteousness, mercy? But let's be careful in our law-keeping not to repeat the mistake of Henry, Harry and Meghan, who got so fixated on the rules of their monarch, they lost sight of her glory. The angels were not appointed rulers of this world. Mankind was appointed ruler of this world. Jesus is ruling this world. I want to finish the sermon today with an appeal to those of you not yet a Christian. Jesus is now crowned king of all. But have you made him king in your heart? I want to highlight one way in which perhaps it's evident that you haven't made him king of your heart, and that is in your singing in church. One of the striking events of the World Cup is happening not during the games, but before the games, when the anthems of countries are played. One country, Iran, the players from there don't sing 
their national anthem because they reject the rule of their country. They despise their leaders. And perhaps you don't sing in church because your heart rejects the rule of Jesus. The words of our psalms are not your prayers. They're not your confessions. They're not your praises. But despite your indifference, your denial, your open rejection, Jesus is Lord. And let us acknowledge him as our Lord. Stephen Watson, chief constable of Greater Manchester Police, is against his officers being involved in politics. He has spoken out against his officers taking the knee. He said, I would only bend my knee to Mrs. Watson, to the Queen, and to God. Will you bend your knee to King Jesus? Who is God? In worship, faith, homage, praise.